You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Once again, this is Garrett Ashley Mullet. I have the privilege, the honor, the great blessing of being your host for however long you listen to this podcast. So welcome. Today, we are going to talk about the books in my Audible queue. I've got six now. I finished the seventh on my way home from Casper, Wyoming, and that's what our last episode of this podcast was about. Vody Bauckham's Fault Lines, his latest book. You should check that podcast episode out, and you should also read the book. But I still have six other books in my queue right now that I'm working on, and I need to figure out what to add for my seventh. I try to always have seven books in my audiobook queue. If one of them gets finished and I have a blank space there for a while, it bothers me and I just I have to figure it out because for whatever reason I've decided to have seven books in my queue. I have seven children and for whatever reason I like the number seven and I want to have seven audiobooks in my queue. Maybe one for every day of the week, I don't know. But anyway, I have seven books in my queue. Right now, one of those books is missing and I don't know what is going to fill that place. I don't know where I'm going to find my next great listen. I'll probably find it on Audible. Almost assuredly find it on Audible. But let's talk about what is in my queue right now. And I'm going to explain my thought process in how I choose which books I put in there. And when I finish one, how do I decide what to replace it with? So first off, in order of most recently listened to to not having listened to or having uh, added the latest. At the top of my list right now is Children of Ash and Elm by Neil Price. I've got eight hours, six minutes left. That's not actually how much time I have. I have my playback speed on double, so that's more like four hours and three minutes. But Children of Ash and Elm is a history of the Vikings, in their own uh, perspective, as much as possible. That's at least the, the intent of the author, is to tell a history of the Vikings through their eyes. How did they see themselves? How did they see the rest of the world? What was their worldview in my terms, maybe not in his terms that I can recall, but what was their worldview? And how did they see the gods? And how did they see themselves? And how did they see one another? A History of the Vikings. Publisher's summary reads that this is the definitive history of the Vikings, from arts and culture to politics and cosmology, by a distinguished archaeologist with decades of expertise. The Viking Age from 750 to 1050 saw an unprecedented expansion of the Scandinavian peoples into the wider world. As traders and raiders, explorers and colonists, they ranged from eastern North Africa to the Asian steppe. But for centuries, the Vikings have been seen through the eyes of others, distorted to suit the tastes of medieval clerics and Elizabethan playwrights, Victorian imperialists, Nazis, and more. None of these appropriations capture the real Vikings or the richness and sophistication of their culture. 
Based on the latest archaeological and textual evidence, Children of Ash and Elm tells the story of the Vikings on their own terms, their politics, their cosmology and religion, their material world. Known today for a stereotype of maritime violence, the Vikings exported new ideas, technologies, beliefs, and practices to the lands they discovered and the peoples they encountered, and in the process were themselves changed. From Eirik Bloodaxe, who fought his way to a kingdom, to Gudrid Thorbjarn Dorter, the most traveled woman in the world, Children of Ash and Elm is the definitive history of the Vikings and their time. So, uh, oh, actually... Oh, okay, yeah, never mind. Okay, so that that came out August 25th, 2020. I was a little confused for a second because I'm looking at the length, and I thought it was shorter than that, but then, again, I need to remind myself of what I just said. I've been listening on double speed. If you listen at one-time speed, normal speed, which I don't know why you would, but if you would, if you did, if you choose to, this is 17 hours, 25 minutes long, but it's it reads very easily. It's a little bit disturbing because the Vikings had a very brutal perspective. Uh, the human sacrifice piece is, um, I think, a, a disturbing element, a very disturbing element. In the story of the Vikings, they practiced human sacrifice. That was part of their religious rite. And when somebody died, it was pretty common for them to sacrifice slaves or a woman or a woman's slave or more than one slave as a way of commemorating this, this wealthy chieftain or warrior's life. And so I find that personally rather disturbing. But how I got to adding this to my queue is I listened to Michael Crichton's Eaters of the Dead, which is the book that the Antonio Banderas movie 13th Warrior is based off of. Little did I know until I got to the end of Eaters of the Dead, that whole story is actually based on a historical text that scholars think has a lot of validity to it. Uh, there was an Arab uh, ambassador or emissary or whatever you want to call him named, it, named Ibn Fadlad who traveled among the Vikings for a time, among the Rus, and he wrote down a lot of interesting eyewitness firsthand observations and so then they use those, a lot of scholars today use those firsthand accounts as the basis for understanding the Vikings better. And so this book here, Vikings, uh, History of the Vikings, Children of Ash and Elm, it is uh, very much referencing those texts by Ibn Fadlad uh, quite a lot throughout the book, passages from the Arab scholar or, or uh, I guess he wasn't a scholar necessarily, but the the Arab source that we have, uh, they're referenced and back and forth between that and the archaeological evidence and outside people's uh, accounts of encountering the, the Vikings and what they observed. All of it makes for an interesting story. But before I listened to Eaters of the Dead, what got me on that track and watching a documentary here lately was playing this game Valheim, and I haven't picked it up for weeks and weeks and weeks, mostly because life got busy and it just it wasn't working out for whatever reason to fit some Valheim in. But I was playing this Viking survival game with my 
sons. And so then all of a sudden I'm kind of interested in learning more about the Vikings because there were a lot of uh, Viking uh, names and concepts in this game. And so then it's like, okay, well, what's behind that, right? Like who is this character or who is this beast that is in the story? So I started watching a little bit more, reading a little bit more, and now here is this. This is probably um, the the best picture of Viking life and history that uh, I've ever come across. So if you're interested in the Vikings, like I have been here lately, check it out. Moving on, I also have The Church History by Eusebius. And I'm not liking this one quite as much, and I think it's because of the way that the translator or the narrator or the publisher or all the above have decided to intersperse notes from the translator into the text. It gets to be very difficult to keep track of what is Eusebius and what are the notes by the translator. There's a lot of criticism interspersed within and I don't know if that is all Eusebius's criticism, where Eusebius is saying, here's the story, here is this thing that is claimed or alleged, but we don't believe that that's true, and here's why. And how much of it is the translator saying, well, based on our archaeological evidence and what we know from other sources, and da-da-da-da, you know. Well, once again, like with the children of Ashenelm, you know, you're looking at multiple sources as much as possible, trying to fill out a complete picture and use reliable data, and sometimes historical sources are taken with a grain of salt because they had a bias, or they might have fudged the truth a little bit, or it might be something that's lost in translation. We're not 100% sure what they meant by this little phrase here, or we have only a partial manuscript, and the rest of that sentence is on the other page that we don't have, or whatever. Uh, I'm not really enjoying the church history quite so much. I, I, I picked it up. Right, I picked it up because it was on the Audible Plus uh, free list, and I probably should have just left it there. If this were just what Eusebius wrote down, <clears throat> without the footnotes, without the interjections and the commentary and the objections, and the hand raising by the translators and you know your modern day scholars, if it were just the text, the original text, read it for what it is, and then put your objections either at the beginning or at the end of the book. I think that would be a lot smoother reading, but as it is, it's kind of jolting, and I don't like the way that the content is organized. I find it I find it confusing, quite frankly. Uh, there's probably quite a lot of Eusebius that I've already gone through that I thought was just the extended introduction by uh, Paul L. Meyer. So, anyway, that's the church history, but... What I added the the book into my queue for originally was to understand the early church post-New Testament writings. Between the New Testament writings and the time of Constantine, Emperor Constantine, when Christianity became an embraced religion within the Roman Empire. It went from being a persecuted religion to being an embraced religion to being the de facto religion at a certain point of the Roman Empire. What happened in those intervening years? And I'd like to read some firsthand accounts. Instead of reading 
an assembled modern history that references Eusebius, that references Augustine, that references all these people that were contemporaneous to these events or relatively contemporaneous who lived a lot closer. These were recent memories and not ancient history for them. I wanted to read the firsthand accounts and then I'm frustrated for that reason, because that was my intent. I'm frustrated with the church history by Eusebius. This copy of it anyways with Paul L. Meyer as the translator because I'm not getting what I came for. I came for just in their own words what happened. Even if I have to take it with a grain of salt, I understand. That's fine. It's not scripture. Uh, Eusebius might have some opinions and he might not be as critical as he should be of some things that he's heard. And we certainly know by the medieval period you've got fragments of a finger of one of the apostles allegedly, you know, being carried around from church to church and venerated uh, and worshipped, really, uh, that that was not good. We know that that was not good. And so some of that weird corruption in the early church in the first couple of centuries, no doubt, could be affecting Eusebius's uh, telling of, of history. But I know that, and... I just want to read what he said. Just just let him talk, please. Okay? One at a time. It's like when my kids have a dispute. They, they both come to me, and he hit me. Okay. Pause. You who has just been struck. Pause. And I want to hear from the striker, what did you do? Did you hit your brother? Why did you hit your brother? Well, I was just sitting there, and da-da-da-da-da, you know. And, and as soon as he gets started, right, this, the striker, supposedly, allegedly, so-called, accused, the accused, uh, as soon as he gets started on explaining what happened, the one who was struck, who brought the initial complaint, wants to jump in. He wants to interject. No, that's not what happened. Da, 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 da. He's going to live fact check him. You are fake news, you know. It's like, no, 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 no. If I wanted to know from you his story... I'd have asked you. I asked him. Let him tell me his story. Take turns. Let him speak. Anyway, okay. I'm waxing eloquent, but it bothers me. I don't like it. And it's the same reason I don't like reading study Bibles. If anything, I would rather have those Bibles that don't have any verse or chapter numbers. It's just the text. Just give me the text. Don't even give me the verse and chapter numbers. I don't want your footnotes. I don't want your commentary. When I'm reading the Bible, I just want to read the Bible. Okay? Just give me the text. If you want to put a commentary in here, I want to make sure that I'm not confusing your commentary for the text itself. So let your commentary be a separate book or at the beginning or at the very end. But put it somewhere where I can skip it <laughs> if I want to. Uh, okay, anyway, moving on. We're only two books in, and I'm halfway through the amount of time that I was going to take to record this podcast. Next in my list, in my queue on Audible right now, my downloaded books that I'm working through, is Our Oriental Heritage by Will Durant. Will and Ariel Durant were a husband and wife team who made this epic series of histories, world histories, very, very lengthy, huge. You could fill up an entire bookshelf just with their histories 
very thick, very long, just volume one, right? This is the story of civilization is the name of the series. And it really is, right? I mean, it's we're talking about hundreds of hours of content. But volume one alone is 50 hours and 17 minutes. I'll read for you the publisher summary real briefly. It says, the first volume of Will Durant's Pulitzer Prize winning series, Our Oriental Heritage, The Story of Civilization, Volume 1, chronicles the early history of Egypt, the Middle East, and Asia. In this masterful work, readers will encounter Sumeria, birthplace of the first cities and written laws, the Egyptians who perfected monumental architecture, medicine, and mummification more than 3,500 years ago, the Babylonians who developed astronomy and physics, and planted the seeds of Western mythology, the Judeans who preserved their culture forever in the immortal books of the Old Testament, the Persians who ruled the largest empire in recorded history before Rome, Indian philosophy, Chinese philosophers, and Japanese samurais. So here is my problem, my big problem with Will Durant, and it might be a deal breaker for me. I don't know that I'm going to be able to get through an entire series, the entire Story of Civilization series like I was originally planning. Maybe. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. But the problem I have is that Durant, every time he references some extra biblical source, he takes it at face value. Every time he references a biblical source for a piece of history, he does so in a scoffing sort of a way. That's my opinion. He does so with this kind of elbow thrown as he's passing by, as if to denigrate the text. He goes out of his way to ascribe all of the biblical history, all of the biblical value, really, everything that's of worth and note in the scriptures, to ascribe all of that to surrounding cultures and civilizations. Now, obviously, to me, he is not a Christian. He's not a believer. And I would also, without knowing his biography, without having read any backstory on him whatsoever, just reading his book and the way he's presenting things that, you know, he's very knowledgeable. There's a lot here that I didn't know, but there's a lot here that I am somewhat familiar with. The way he chooses to emphasize certain things reminds me a lot of... Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, except this is on a global scale. This is doing the Howard Zinn thing to all of human history. And for all I know, Howard Zinn was inspired by Will Durant, Will and Ariel Durant, and that's part of why he wrote A People's History. I don't know. But every time there's some reference to redistributing wealth and years of jubilee or income inequality or anything like that, he chooses to present things with a certain set of adjectives for what he likes and another set of adjectives for what he doesn't like. He makes a lot of value judgments. Now, Howard Zinn says in his introduction to People's History of the United States that that's just inescapable. No historian can help it. And I'm sure with as much time as as a lifetime that Will Durant put into this story of civilization, he would argue, well, it's my life's work. I have every right to 
put my own feelings into it where I please, and you can mind your own business. But for the casual reader who would pick up this bookshelf's worth, this library's worth of content and embrace it uncritically, and be careful. You, you, need to, you need to filter what he's telling you because there's a lot of value judgments there, and quite possibly there's a lot of propaganda here. So anyway, moving on. That is our Oriental heritage, and I have 18 hours left. Uh, if I were listening on single speed and uh, nine hours left on double speed. Next in my queue is Fools, Frauds, and Firebrands by Roger Scruton. This one I picked up after having read another book by Roger Scruton talking about how to be conservative, what is conservatism, why is it distinctive, why is it important, why is it worth conserving conservatism. But Fools, Frauds, and Firebrands, is his book about the new thinkers of the left or the thinkers of the new left, as you may prefer, as the subtitle, in fact, reads. So he's talking about who are their philosophers, who are the the thought leaders who are helping to evolve what the left uh, is trying to do, what its goals are, how it sees itself, how it sees its opponents. And a lot of the names that he references in here, I was not familiar with. I didn't know who they were. I don't know that I know who they are even now. But he mentions E.P. Thompson, Ronald Dworkin, R.D. Lang, Jürgen Habermas, Jorki Lukacs, Jean-Paul Sartre. I was familiar with Sartre. Jacques Derrida. Uh, I was familiar with Derrida as well. A little bit. I, at least I've heard of I've heard of them, I should say, Sartre and Derrida. Uh, Slevoj Zizek, Rolf Miliband, and Eric Hobsbawm. So the big idea here is that the new thinkers of the new left are fools, frauds, and firebrands. So they're pseudo-intellectuals, for one, pretending at being smarter than they really are and peddling their wares in the universities and in pop culture and in broader society and through the media that in uncritically repeats after them. And he exposes why their ideas are not new, really. Uh, they might be some twists on old ideas, but they're not really all that new and they have been tried and they're not as good as they maybe sound at first blush. This is some clever marketing and uh, packaging of some old ideas that don't work. So Roger Scruton, great thinker, uh, good communicator. It's worth listening to what he has to say here on these political philosophers. Uh, This is important stuff. It's going to be over a lot of people's heads probably, but you pick up more by reading it anyways than you would if you just said, well, I don't don't understand that. Well, you're never going to understand it if you just shy away from it. If you're scared of it, you'll pick up something if you at least give it your best go. If you don't ever dip your toe in those waters, you will never understand it. But if you start now, who knows? Maybe you'll surprise yourself. So uh, next in my queue, I haven't actually started this one yet. 
because I have a number of really thick histories uh, all going at the same time. As I mentioned, the history of the Vikings. I've got the church history by Eusebius slash Paul L. Meyer. I've got Will Durant's Our Oriental Heritage and the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant I'm excited about, but I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready to start it yet. Uh, Ron Chernow's book, Grant, was excellent. It was one of the best biographies I've ever read. Uh, I had come away with a new appreciation for Grant that I didn't have before, and I loved it. I loved that book. Um, not ready quite yet to jump into Grant in his own words. I want to give a little bit more space and time between Chernow's book and Grant's book so that, again, kind of like with Paul L. Meyer and Eusebius, I'm better able to distinguish what is the one and what is the other. So Ron Chernow finishes out his biography of Grant talking about Grant writing his memoirs at the end of his life, and then Grant passes away. He died, not to, you know, spoiler alert, but he dies. He's not alive anymore. Uh, but he passes away before the book, his memoirs, really are are published. Um, I, I don't want to view Grant's memoirs too, too much through Chernow's interpretive lens. I want to pick them up and allow Grant to speak for himself. And to some extent, I might, in the end, have a different perspective on what it is that Grant is saying and what he's left out and what he's included and what he's added based on having read Chernow's book. I don't think that's entirely to be avoided or a bad thing, but I want to know which is one and which is the other. So at some point I'll start that. haven't just yet. Next in my queue is That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis. And, you know, this is funny. That Hideous Strength is uh, part three. It's, it's book three of three of C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. And I read the first two, and so did Lauren. And Lauren has read book three. I started on them, and then once I started on them and they were in our library, she said, well, you know, maybe I'll read them too. And so she read the first two and really liked them. She came to book three. She got to reading book three before I did. And she told me after she read it and while she was reading it, I didn't really care for it as much. I didn't like it as much as the first two. And it's funny, not in a ha-ha way, but in just kind of a quirky way, that even without reading it myself, just knowing she didn't like it as much, my enthusiasm for reading it has been really, really low. I have not been all that interested in reading That Hideous Strength. It is the longest of the three, and that could be part of it, that the other two even if they got a little bit dull or a little hard to read at points, they're faster paced, and so it's easier to follow what's going on. Also, that hideous strength seems to be more centered or based on Earth, uh, whereas the other two spent a lot of their time on other planets. And they begin and end on Earth, but they spend the bulk of the, the time of the book, of the story, uh, somewhere else other than Earth. And so that's interesting, that's exciting, that's fresh. But at some point, I will finish it. It's in the very last slot because I started it, and I still have 13 hours left, or rather six and a half hours left. But it's a good series. It's an interesting series. 
The more I read C.S. Lewis, by the way, the more careful I want to be about putting him on a pedestal. He was a man. His books were very, very popular. He was very good at writing. He had a great imagination. He had a, a great command of the English language. He was very clever. And for the most part, he was uh, very helpful, I think, in the way that he communicated Christian truth. Not 100%, right? He was not 100% reliable. Again, like with Eusebius or Augustine, you can't take his words as scripture. They might be helpful, but he's not right all the time. Sometimes it's just C.S. Lewis talking, and he knows in part, and he prophesies in part. Uh, he's not been perfected yet, and you got to just take it for what it's worth that he thinks this, but it ain't so, right? Uh, respectfully, I would disagree with Lewis on the way that he interprets the Psalms, for instance. Um, there's some other things that he talks about in Mere Christianity that I find odd, I find somewhat contradictory. You know, he says it's it should be enough. That's the whole premise of Mere Christianity is it should be enough to just be a Christian. I don't need to be a Christian plus X, Y, Z. And the folks that don't want to get political, they'll seize on that kind of rhetoric from Lewis. And and I've been taken with it as well. Why do I have to be anything else, right? Why do I need to... I don't, I don't like that you identify as a Calvinist because I'm just a Christian. I want to be a merely Christian, and that's enough, right? Well, yes, but sometimes labels can be helpful also. And knowing where you stand on this doctrine is not bad, it shouldn't be the object of your faith, but it is good to know where you stand on these things and be able to articulate those in shorthand, a quick, fast uh, label so that people have some idea of where you're at on the theological spectrum can be helpful. Okay, sure. But Lewis writes in Mere Christianity that it should be enough to have the scriptures and have the Bible and all of that. But then, for one, he's writing Mere Christianity right? He's writing something that people very often add to the Bible without necessarily admitting it. I had a friend in high school, Phil Langefeld. Philip Langefeld, if you're listening, which I doubt you are, uh, forgive me for what I'm about to say, but in my personal opinion, Phil Langefeld put too much stock in C.S. Lewis. And it's not to say you shouldn't put any stock in C.S. Lewis. He was a good writer, he had some worthy things to contribute to the conversation. He had some good thoughts. He explained some things, I think, in a way that is helpful for modern English readers to read and pay attention to because he's he's unpacked a lot of history and tradition and put it in a condensed format that we can understand better without necessarily all of the learning and knowledge that he has that went into that quick, simple explanation. But... Philip Langefeld, it seemed to me, put too much stock and really did. I, I almost think he even said at one point that he thought that C.S. Lewis uh, was pretty much inspired, right? He was, he was inspired the same way that the New Testament and the Old Testament were inspired. It's like, mm, that's a really dangerous guy. Love you. I love you dearly. You're a sweet, sweet man. And I know you love Jesus, but some dangerous stuff and uh and phil you know it's like as he went on not to speak ill of him 
But there were a number, number of other things that he started thinking and saying, um, you know, in, in subsequent years as we got into our 20s and then 30s. And when I was still was on Facebook, I'd see his posts. And there was a lot of Christian veganism. And there was a lot of environmentalism. And there was a lot of just weird ideas that he started embracing. And I can't help wondering if putting C.S. Lewis on too high of a pedestal didn't lead to some of that. Didn't lead to thinking a little too highly of our own intellect and not highly enough of the scriptures. Now, I respectfully disagree with his conclusions. I don't disagree with us being able to come to our own conclusions on some things, um, even if they're considered unorthodox. Um, got into some really interesting debates about veganism and whether or not we needed to be vegans just because God only gave permission to eat meat, eat animals, after Noah and his family got off the ark, after the, the great deluge. Uh, we got into some interesting discussions. My big question was, well, if if your premise is that Adam and Eve weren't eating meat in the garden, which I can accept, I, I agree with you on that, and therefore we should not eat meat, which I don't agree with you on, uh, but it, let's just take your argument, for instance. Does it follow then that we should all be nudists as well because Adam and Eve didn't wear clothes originally? Is that, I mean, how far do we take this? Um, they didn't have cell phones and computers and Facebook either. So, you know, if, we, if we're going to be just like Adam and Eve right now, in the, in the here and now, in the present, we won't even be having this conversation from a distance. And, and I can't drive to you either. And I can't wear clothes. I'm going to have to just hoof it in the buff uh, to get to you to continue this conversation. Because, uh, yeah, anyway. Enough about that. Philip Langefeld, dear sweet friend, one of my best friends in high school and in college. We went to Cedarville University together, played some risk games, watched movies together. Um, great conversation. And his family was just absolutely uh, generous and charitable, and they opened their home to me in my later teen years. I was having a lot of difficulty with my parents, and um, I was living with my dad, and we got into a really big fight, a big argument, rather, uh, a war of words regarding my mother and some things that we were, I'm not going to get into in this episode, probably won't get into in future episodes, but long story short, I ended up walking out. I stormed out, didn't want to stay with my dad anymore. I was an adult by that point, and I didn't know where I was going to go, but I don't I don't want your vehicle. I don't want to live with you. I just, I can't even stand to be around you right now. And so I just walked on down the road. I made a call and asked if somebody could pick me up. I think I asked Lauren if she could pick me up. So I was just angry, angry young man. And uh, it ended up being that I, I kind of bounced uh, between a couple of friends' homes. Uh, one friend's home where I had been told by his mother that I could crash there for a while uh, if I ever needed to, if I needed to get some space from my parents to kind of think about life and where I was going. And then once I actually did take the, take her up on that, take uh, my friend up on that, she ended up giving me the boot. Um, it, was, it was weird. 
uh, ended up giving me the boot, just randomly getting all bent out of shape with me because I'd gotten crossways with my dad. And so then the Langefelds ended up taking me in for several weeks while I just tried to figure out what am I doing. You know, that that scene in Nacho Libre where Nacho is found out, he's kicked out of the monastery or his robe catches fire and everybody sees that he's wearing luchador clothes underneath and he, he basically just wanders off into the wilderness to die. Uh, he's soul-searching out there. He's only, you know, like a mile from the village or the town or whatever, but he goes out there to die. He's being really dramatic, and he's uh, he's in an existential quandary. He's like, you know, where where am I? I'm in, I'm in limbo. I'm not a monk anymore, and I'm not a great luchador, you know. Why did you make me such a stinky warrior, as he asks? Um yeah, that's kind of where I was at from an emotional standpoint. And so thank you, Langefelds, if any of you are listening. If you ever listen to this broadcast, thank you so much for your hospitality and your graciousness. At that point in time, you really were a big, big help. But moving on to the tail end, I've got to conclude this episode. It is Sunday, March 25th, 2021, episode 39 of season three. And we've got church here before too long. I need to get ready for church and go to church, take my family, uh, potentially, maybe. We'll see. We'll see how everybody's feeling, if anybody's feeling under the weather this morning before we go. But got to figure out what I'm going to add to my audible cue next. And so part of how I go about doing that is I take a look at what books are there. And if I've got four dense, long histories and two political treatises, I think to myself, I need a little more balance than that. I need something a little lighter reading. Now, if I've already got a sci-fi book and some fun little light reading thing in there and another book about nothing in particular that I'm just blowing through and I need to have a little bit more meat and substance, well, then I might add something like I did with Will Durant's The Story of Civilization our Oriental heritage. I might add something like that to my queue. I might add Ron Chernow's Grant. I might add Ulysses S. Grant's personal memoirs, etc., etc. But as it is right now, I feel like I've got a, a lot of history in there. I've got one uh, biographical work, autobiographical work, that uh, I'll start listening to at some point here, probably in the next couple of weeks. I've got some American history, I've got some Viking history, I've got some church history, I've got some ancient world history in there. I've got C.S. Lewis and his uh, Space Trilogy conclusion in there, which I'll probably try and pick that back up. Whatever I add, I might not necessarily start listening to right away, but I'll just have it there. And then I might try and finish up the uh, final book in the Space Trilogy ASAP. If I listen every day on my way to and from work, I should have it finished in no time. If I get something out in the plant that I'm doing that I can throw earbuds in, I'll finish it even quicker. Might even finish it in a day, depending on what it is. But I've got Fools, Frauds, and Firebrands by Scruton. And I think between Scruton and Lewis and Durant and Eusebius and 
all that. I'm, I'm needing something a little bit more down to earth to fill things out. I've got the book Fault Lines having just been finished. And maybe I'll listen to another book by Vody Bakum or I'll see what else is related to Fault Lines. See if I can pick up another book on social justice. I've got a, a long, long wish list on Audible. I'll start cycling through that because I'll throw recommendations that I get from people in there and I'll throw books that I just see if I see them on the Audible Plus catalog and I'm not ready to listen to them just yet. I'll add them to my library while they're free in case they stop being free at some point and then I have them and so I might look back through some of those. Uh, Another book that sounds really, really interesting was recommended to me by my neighbor JP, Two Houses Down and I'll pull up Audible here so I can take a look at it and remember the title of it. In my wish list, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis by Mark A. Noel. That sounds really, really interesting. In fact, that sounds like a really great follow-up to Vody Bauckham's Fault Lines because this is not the first time that American Christians have had to grapple with a theological disagreement, a deep and genuine theological disagreement with regards to race and how should we then live and how do we honor God in light of the text and what it says and our circumstance. So I might pick that one up, talking about how the North and the South, how the slaveholding establishment and the abolitionists each argued from the scriptures their relative positions. Might pick that one up. I think it looks interesting. It sounds really interesting. JP is listening to it right now. It would give us something to discuss and talk about while it's fresh in his mind. Probably going to add that one. So that's all I've got for this episode. If you've got some audiobook recommendations for me based on what I've just told you I'm interested in, what I like to read, what I like to listen to, send them my way. I'm always happy to get recommendations. I might not listen to them right away. You might find it's six months, nine months, a year, two years before I get to that book that you recommended because I've got a lot of titles. Actually, there's 108 titles in my wish list right now. So there's a lot, but I will remember that you're the one that recommended the book to me, and I will come back to you whenever I finish that book, and I'll thank you for the recommendations, and I'll want to talk with you about it. So give me some recommendations, if you will. Also, feel free to reach out if you've read any of these books that I'm currently reading right now. I'd love to get your take on them. If you think I'm mistaken about Lewis or Durant, or if you know some more about their backstories, Uh, if Lewis was secretly the Illuminati or he was a Mason or something like that, you've got some evidence of that. I'd love to hear it because uh, it's just interesting, right? Let's talk about it. Durant, if he was a socialist, if he was Howard Zinn's uh, biological father and, uh, and and Howard Zinn was writing under a pen name or something like that, um, you know, I'd love to hear it. So that's all for now. As always, thank you for listening. Pick up some books. Read some books, as, uh, as Nacho Libre would say. Go on, children. Read some books. Uh, thank you for listening. Till next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Hello, this is Garrett Ashley Mullet, host of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM, and also chief editor and writer at On The Rocks blog since 2015. I have just published my first book. It is available on paperback and Kindle from Amazon.com right now. Are you thinking about homeschooling? Is someone you know considering it? No shortage of books will help you figure out how to do it. This is a book about why you should. Written from the perspective of a homeschooling father of seven who was himself homeschooled growing up, this is an encouragement to fathers and mothers to think rightly about their children's education. What our children believe about God, themselves, one another, and the universe, these are all features of their education, and the worldview our children develop is downstream of the sort of education they receive. And this is why we homeschool. Maybe you are a parent of homeschooling children and you could use some encouragement. Perhaps your local school shut down and now remote learning or homeschooling has been forced on you. Now you could use some help finding motivation to make the best of it. Or maybe you have a friend or family member considering homeschooling their children. Rather than starting you off with another home education how-to, let us start with why we homeschool. And as we figure out the reasons we should do this thing, the way to do it will be made far easier. Just go right on over to Amazon.com and type in, and this is why we homeschool in the search results. It'll come right up. Order your copy today.